Hi everyone, I'm Adam Johnson. I'm a dad and a rare disease patient advocate, a self-proclaimed dadvocate. From the onset of symptoms and even after an eventual diagnosis, the isolation was almost as excruciating as the symptoms themselves. I felt so alone in so many ways. One of the most prominent ways in particular was as a parent. I knew I couldn't be the only person with a rare disease who was also trying to raise children, but it sure felt like I was. As I've learned, when there's not a specific community you're looking for, one that you need, sometimes you just have to make it yourself. It's taken a while, but I finally decided to do just that. And here we are. This is Parents is Rare, a series brought to you by Energy in Action. Living life as a parent with a rare disease can be quite paradoxical. We laugh and cry, we're vulnerable and scared, we're brave and afraid, all at the same time. Parents is Rare is a community where parents like me, who have a rare disease or chronic illness, can connect, share, support, and be supported. Welcome back to the Parents is Rare series of the Energy in Action podcast. Good to be with you. I'm your host, Adam Johnson. A few housekeeping notes before we roll into this month's episode. So my friends over at the Disorder Channel, which is free on Roku or Fire TV, they've recently added a special project that I was really proud to be a part of. It's called Beyond Limits, Rare Men Talking Mental Health. This is a film by David Ross, who, as you may remember, was a guest on Parents is Rare back in January 2022. If you want to learn more about David or any of the other guests, you can find a link on my website, rarediseasedad.com. Anyways, this film gets the perspective of men in the rare disease community as they discuss their mental health. So I definitely would encourage you to go and check that out. It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart and really important that we keep those conversations going. Also coming soon to the Disorder Channel is a new series called Pain Points, which will debut on December 23rd. Now, as you may or may not know, I'm a big Seinfeld fan, so the significance of this date is not lost on me. If you're not familiar, December 23rd is Festivus. This was a holiday made by the legendary Frank Costanza, and he kicks this holiday off by saying, I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. So in in terms of the Pain Point series, it's going to be kind of Festivus-themed. It's a Festivus for the rest of us in the rare community. Each episode will have a rant about an issue that is uniquely different for families dealing with rare disease. So it'll be funny, cathartic, and informative. And it, it will take the rare disease side, you know, that component seriously. Everything else, though, not so much. It'll be great. And many of the guests on Pain Points are folks that I was finally able to meet in person at the Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit a few months ago. So I'm really looking forward to this series coming out. All right, speaking of meeting wonderful people in San Diego, that brings me to this week's guest, who I was lucky enough to meet as well last summer. Robin Powers is this month's guest. We cross paths on a panel focused around parenting while having a rare disease. And as she did during our discussion then, today she'll share some important and meaningful perspective during our conversation. I really appreciate how Robin handles everything. She's got it all going on here. First, she's a mother who has a rare disease. She's also raising a son who has a rare condition. And I love how she aptly refers to herself as a rare giver. I love this so much because she just wears so many different hats. She's a single parent, she's going to school, yet she continues to knock out important advocacy-related work and projects. And she's got some great plans for the future. I'm really looking forward to seeing those things come to pass, and she's going to nail it. She's going to do awesome. 
Also, Robin continues to do all of these different things while supporting and being there for others, which can't be understated. I love how Robin is just unapologetically herself, and as she mentions in this episode, she's challenging the status quo. All right, without further ado, here she is, Robin Powers. Hello, Robin. Good to see you. Thanks for taking some time for me today. Hi, how are you doing? It's so great to see you. I'm really honored to be a part of this today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to see you as well. This is great. We were fortunate enough, Robin, to connect a few months ago at the Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit. Seems like forever ago, but really not that long ago, I guess, right? Yeah, it does kind of feel like forever ago, yet it feels like it was just yesterday just because so much has been going on, which has kind of been a continuing conversation about the same topic, but in a little bit of different ways, which is exciting. Yes, I agree. It is exciting. And that really galvanized me. It provided me some energy. It was just so wonderful to be there. And I'm glad you were able to connect with others and have those continuing conversations as well. I'm so glad that we got to share some time together on the panel and you know, the topic that we were talking about there is what we'll also be discussing today. And that's, you know, how it is for us to be a parent with a rare disease, navigating everything else that comes with parenting as well. So I love the insight that you have. And I'm excited to talk about that with you again today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to talk about it too. And I'm very glad that you um, enjoy the insights that I have. I would like to just uh, quickly introduce myself just so that people know me a little bit. So my name is Robin Powers. Uh, I'm an advocate in Buffalo, New York for rare diseases. I go to Buffalo State College and I'm currently a graduate student. Um, I'm in the multidisciplinary program and I'm focusing on biomedical research. I am doing rare disease research with my principal advisor, uh, Dr. Skerritt, and we're doing research on EKV and gap junctions. And then I also integrated Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome into it, which was very interesting. It has a uh, correlation with zebrafish. So I get to do research with the National Institute of Health on a micro grant, which I was selected as the only graduate student to do it. So I'm very excited about that. Wow, congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you very much. I'm very, very blessed to have this opportunity. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you for the intro, Robin. I can already tell that I'm above my pay grade in talking with you. (laughs) You're way more knowledgeable than I am on some of these topics for sure. I, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing, how you're continuing to move ahead, do your schooling, work on these projects. It's it's incredible. And you know, and one of the things that you mentioned there was Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your connection to the condition and your connection to the rare community. Yeah, I would love to, actually. Um, so when I was 13 years old, I dislocated my knee in my sleep. And I woke up and it was dislocated. And I just kind of popped it back into place because I had a biology exam that day. And I was just really in love with human biology. So I was like, mm, I don't have time for this. So we'll pop this back into place go on our way and we'll just deal with it later. So then after school and everything, I was like, oh, you know, mom, you know, my knee dislocated. She didn't really care. So then I just walked down the street to the nearest, um, you know, doctor, which was actually my primary at the time. And I wouldn't leave until they would, you know, address the fact that there was something very wrong. They then said that I had, you know, hypermobility syndrome, but that I would grow out of it. And I could tell that they were lying just because, I don't know, I've been lied to in the past and I can tell when adults were lying. And I was only 13, but I was still like, I don't know why you're lying. And I'm not sure what it is that you're lying about. But I'm not going to grow out of this because you're telling me that I have a moderate to severe dislocation that happened in my sleep and then it tore up like cartilage and all that stuff. So I don't really see how I would grow out of it. That was when I saw a, a specialist and I went to, you know, back to my primary and told him. And then I said, I believe that it's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I said, I did, you know, some research. Um, I've spent about three months looking up everything that I can. You know, I went to Buffalo State. I went to the University at Buffalo. And, you know, I've read everything that I possibly can. I've asked other doctors and stuff. I've surveyed, you know, Nord, Global Genes, the National Institute of Health, NCATS, 
scarred everything that I could find. And I'm like, it's Eleanor Stanley syndrome. And he's like, it's too rare. You can't have that. And I said, okay, you can have that perspective if you would like to, but I'll be back. So I went to a geneticist. I didn't know that you needed a referral. Like you could just get a referral and just go there. I actually had to, you know, wiggle my way in there because I didn't really want to see an adult because it's a pediatric place. But I always write, I don't know, really good referrals. So I always get back in there. I was like, how did you get back in here? I'm like, well, there's more stuff to address. So, you know, I wrote my own referral. I got into the geneticist and then he was embarrassed, unfortunately, because I did the differential diagnosis kind of like right in front of him because I was just kind of like, well, I already know what it is. So I'm just going to, you know, explain it to you and just see if you agree or not. And he was like, he said, I'm embarrassed because I devoted my entire career to this and you just taught me more than anybody else or anything else has ever in my life and I'm retiring right now. And I said, don't be embarrassed. I am cheating because I have this disease. I have to experience this disease every single day. Therefore, I know it more than you possibly could ever know it, which is a good thing. Don't feel bad about that. I'm like, you dedicated your life to helping people like me who almost never get any help because with the hypermobility version, which is the one that they believe that I have, although I have not been typed, they don't ever want to really even see you or like do a genetic workup just to make sure that, that is the type and stuff like that. So I was just like very um, amazed. He had dedicated his entire career to it. And I was like, do not be embarrassed. I mean, we're all smart in our own ways and we all know things in different ways and we all learn in different ways, which means that I don't believe that I'm smarter than anybody. So, I mean, I ended up getting into the rare disease community for all of this because, um, well, I did know about NORD and Global Genes and like all the resources that there were. I didn't know about the conferences and I didn't know that there was connections like you and everybody else that I've met, which have been amazing. I mean, I think the rare disease community gave me a family, you know, and that's beautiful because odd one out, I was the oddball, the one with the disease that nobody wanted to believe. So my mom was just like, mm, I don't really care. And then I don't really speak with them anymore. But then I met Rachel Sheeran and, um, Elaine and now they call me family actually they said that they've adopted me and my son and I did not think that I could end up getting another family so the rare disease community gave me family and I found about the conferences when my biochemistry teacher was like oh I don't believe that Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is real and I was like oh really well you have MS so um I don't know I think I'm gonna prove this to you so then I contacted Nord and I was like I know that I'm not the traditional student that you guys would want I'm from a state school and I'm not I, a pre-med student or something like that, but I do have this poster with all this research, which should be something that you guys would want. It's on one of the topics that you guys picked. It was uh, increasing knowledge about rare diseases via modern technology um, that I did a poster on. So it was kind of right on the money. And I didn't even realize it was right on the money. And I just picked it because it was the only one that I could do. And they said, yes, please apply. And I applied and they actually said yes. And then I went to student um, chapter meeting and then they changed the public health policy after to allow for anybody from any academia, from anywhere in the world to attend because they realized that they were losing out on, I don't know, people like me that maybe just didn't fit properly into a university because they really don't have any accommodations at the University of Buffalo, which is why I go there. I just kind of, I did uh, the individualized studies uh, program at Buffalo State College, which is kind of like the gifted program because it's kind of like the, we're going to let you do what you're really good at program. And then, you know, we're going to give you a degree for it because we know that you're going to excel at it because I don't know, my professors, like my uh, my principal advisor said that gifted students, which I never have heard the term gifted till graduate school, which is interesting because it took 34 years, should be able to just do what they're good at because that's what they will excel at the most and it will amaze, you know, the professors and the students in the school. And so that's what I got to do and that's what I'm getting to do in graduate school. It's quite exciting. So I got into the rare disease community. I will not accept that you will not accept that this is a real disease. You could have just Googled it in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like to me, Robin, that you've been your own advocate from a young age and, you know, it's continuing to serve you so well. And, you know, you knew there was something going on here and you just kept at it. You just kept digging and 
I bet that's just such a wonderful example for your kiddo as well. You know, it's important for our kids to learn some of these skills and and to see how we continue to stand up for what is right and to continue to go down these pathways because, you know, as you mentioned, the diagnostic odyssey, it's long and it's winding. And I, I love that your story, which you just kind of walked us through there, shows your perseverance. And and it also shows that, you know, you've done that. You've persevered in, in many different walks of life. And I think that's really going to continue to pay dividends. It's going to pay dividends for, for you, for your son. And and, you know, even for that doctor that you were talking about, that's fantastic. So well done. Yeah, um, I really like to challenge the status quo. Uh, it's something that I enjoy doing just because I feel like if you don't do it, then well, no one else is going to do it after you because other people don't really enjoy doing it. It's kind of like jumping out into the sharks or taking a gulp or something they say. But to me, it's just normal. It's just what I do. And I have actually seen my son in very many examples stand up for himself and advocate for himself. And I actually did not teach him to do this. He just saw me do it. And then he told his, you know, other families, like, you guys don't respect me, which is true, unfortunately, because they don't respect me, his dad or my son. So he stood up for himself. He's like, you guys don't respect me. And I deserve respect. And I was sad that he had to do that, but so very proud of him. It's just amazing what examples we give to our children and other children, because I've got other children that have sent me letters and stuff that say that I'm their hero. And I'm like, I'm not your hero yet. I haven't saved you yet. I've got to still come up with the gene therapy and find missing allele and all this stuff. And that's all that I can think about. But just because I'm trying, they think that I'm their hero. And it's amazing that I can just inspire them just through trying. Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect. And, you know, one of those admirable traits that I find so wonderful about you is that you continue to go, you continue to progress. And you know, one thing that I like to think about is that that progress isn't going to be had. We aren't going to make these strides until somebody decides to do it, until somebody decides to go after it, decides to go on that journey. And, you know, even though it's cliche that the journey of a thousand miles does begin with a single step and you're taking those steps, Robin, and I love that the other people around you, you know, some that you know, some that you don't even know, look up to you and they find inspiration and they find hope with the work that you're doing. I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm excited to see how it plays out on your journey. That's really sweet. I kind of hear that a lot. And to me, I'm just living my life. So it doesn't really seem like anything that's too exceptional or whatever somebody might call it or inspirational. But just the fact that my life is, is quite amazing because I never thought that I'd be anything. I was just always told I'm disabled. You know, you're not, you know, you're not exceptional. You're just disabled. You can't do this because you're disabled. I was told I couldn't be a nurse because I was disabled. Well, that's not correct at all. And I wish that I would not have listened to them. But, you know, it's just we've come so far in disability, but we also have so far to go. And that's the thing with the journey. It takes one step. Absolutely. You know, I'm hoping to also help with that. I want to bring hope back into the Hippocratic Oath is what I say, because I feel like They've kind of lost it by being like, oh, pain is not a um, not a vital sign. I'm like, it's the only vital sign that can actually change all of the other vital signs. Therefore, it's the most vital sign of the vital signs. So I want to, you know, have the medical community go back to what the Hippocratic Oath was originally, because that's what made sense. I'm excited because um, I've got PJ Brooks. He just made a meeting with me on my birthday. Yay, happy birthday. Yay. <laughs> happy birthday. So he's like, you know, he's like, he was very excited because at the National Organization for Rare Disorders Conference, where I did the Angel Aid poster, um, he had asked questions. He, he was waiting for questions at the end. And I had already thought of these gene therapy ideas, like one month before Global Genes, just randomly one day, like just one morning, I just had like a bunch of epiphanies and then ran them by the people that I knew. And they're like, well, I don't really know, but it sounds like that stuff could work. So then I ran it by someone at that uh, worked for Ultragenics at the conference. And they're like, oh, wow, those ideas actually could 
totally be viable. Those are very good ideas. Come work for me in Boston. I'm like, mm, that's not real. And then I go to, you know, Nord and I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. They're just telling me that all of my ideas are the newest initiatives for their grant programs. So that's why I asked, hey, PJ Brooks, would you possibly mind doing a few Zoom calls with me and maybe, you know, help me figure out what direction I should go and what gene therapy I should tackle first? And he's like, yeah, I've been waiting for you to email me for like three years. And then also a doctor that I used to be my doctor that now uh, practices just research got a hold of me. And he's like, you know, I'm really excited to see everything that you're doing. And it really inspires me to go farther. And I'm like, but you're the genius doctor that I met. That's the best advocate that I've ever met. So it's just very amazing to have these people in my corner. And when I thought that it was possible, because I came from not a very privileged, you know, background, I was not privileged. Um, but I took that chance. What I did was I took the statistics and I changed the odds by, you know, changing the factors in them. So, and so I became very perseverant. I would not take no for an answer. I took every single opportunity that I could find. I always asked instead of being too scared to ask because I knew that all of that would turn my hope into action and would actually make it very possible instead of just slightly possible. So good. Love it. Again, kudos to you, Robin, for taking all of those steps. You know, for me, it comes back to that perseverance that we talked about and this family, this connection that you've been able to find in the rare community. It's a, it's a common theme. It's, it's also something that I've been really thankful for as well. You know, it's a community that means so much to me and, and I see that it's making an impact on you as well. And one of the things that I've really been reflecting on since we were in San Diego on the panel together, and then in talking about it with the others is, is the emotional and the mental impacts for those of us who are parents with a rare disease. And I know, know you've spoken about it before, Robin, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts on that. How does it feel for you to be parenting while having a rare disease? Anything that I can think of, it's probably one of the most challenging things that you could actually, you know, expect out of a person to not have a caregiver and needing a caregiver because I have a rare disease myself to also then care for someone else and be their rare champion of hope when I never had a rare champion of hope. I didn't even know what that meant until, you know, I became my son's. So it's very taxing and it's very emotional because I always feel like I'm failing. Like every single night, I'm not going to lie. I do cry every single night feeling guilty. I always feel guilty because like yesterday I felt really sick. So I had to lay down six hours and I'm like, this is so not fair to my child. You know, he's just watching TV and like, we should be doing something else. And said, I was just too sick. So I was laying down. So it gets very depressing and I try and stay positive as I can, but I could say at night, that's definitely when I get the most you know, sad about things because that's when I have the most time to think and there's not other things going on to distract me. So I would say that also seeing my try to care for me and stuff and like bring me blankets or like water or something or a stuffed animal, just like anything you can, that breaks my heart. I do not want him to be my caregiver. I am his caregiver, but he loves me that much that it is very sweet, you know, and I know that, you know, he's just doing small things that, you know, he thinks will be helpful. So it's not like it's taxing on him, but it's probably mentally taxing on him just to have the experience of knowing that his mother's been sick her entire life. And all that he says is, make my mom healthy at the doctor's like restaurant. He's like, my mom wants to be healthy. Make my mom healthy. Make my mom healthy. And I'm trying to pee for like five, five hours or six hours just for, you know, I don't know, a drug test or whatever, just to see if I'm taking my medication. It's like, well, I did pick it up. I do have these diseases I've had for 20 years. I'm pretty sure that I'm taking it. You know what I mean? So he's like, let my mommy go. Like, you know, and you're just a little advocate, but at the same time, I'm worried about what it will do to him in the future mentally, because I know that it was very mentally taxing for me just to have the rare disease and not to have anyone 
So I just hope that what I'm adding to his life is not going to be a deficit. Yeah, I hear you on those points, Robin. It's it's one of the most challenging and difficult things for me and and thus the topic, right? Like that's that's the reason for the Parents is Rare podcast. I feel like it's just so challenging. You know, when I was diagnosed, that was one of the first things that popped into my head. What what kind of an impact does this have on my kids, right? Like are they are they going to be emotionally okay? There there will be an impact. And those those feelings that you mentioned of guilt and, you know, am I putting too much on them? And and I wish I could be doing something else right now. You know, you're you're not alone in that, Robin. It's a it's a common theme that I've talked with many others about. And, you know, I think it's helpful to to know that we're not alone in these things. It's not it's not something that we need to dwell on either. And I, I think that it's something that we need to acknowledge because it's there. And as much as it pains me to hear, you know, Robin, that you know, I don't like that you are in the situation that you're in, where where the nighttime is just that really difficult time. You're in those situations, having those feelings, you know, and I've I've been there too. One thing I'll say is I I think it's important to have those moments. And for me personally, it's not it's not healthy to hold those feelings, to hold those tears inside. You know, I don't I don't know. Do you do you have any thoughts around that? Oh, I'm exactly the same way. If I bottle things up, they just explode at random when no one's expecting it and when it's not a very convenient. So that's why, you know, I just cry it out because it's just something that needs to happen. But I do think that one thing that we could do possibly for parents that maybe have a rare disease and are parenting a child with a rare disease that have like that extra struggle, if we created some kind of support group so that it could be like, you know, one hand washes the other, it takes a village idea. Because I mean, if we had the village, like it was supposed to be originally, like it takes a village to raise a child. It wouldn't be so taxing on us if we just had our neighbors helping us and stuff like that. And one out of 10 people has a rare disease. Where's my other person that has a rare disease that would understand that would be able to be like, oh, I can help you with this if you can help me with that, because that's how our society should be. And that's what I would love to see. You know, I would love to see not just the rare disease community, but just the world, our society, just understanding that while we may be different, we have things to offer. And while we may have extra things that are burdening us, we have extra things to offer just because of that. So our weaknesses are our strengths. They could just, you know, if we could just have more of a village idea, it wouldn't be so hard for all of us. And, you know, we wouldn't feel so alone at times. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. I hear you. And it, it feels like a constant struggle, right? Like we're trying to move the needle and, and sometimes it's just this two steps forward, three steps back type of a deal. But, but that's why we're both here. I mean, we're trying to do that advocacy work that we do. We're having the discussions like this, and it's so important that we do these things. And, you know, I'm really appreciative of, of you showing up in this way, Robin. It, it, it means a lot. It's, it's very impactful. So you mentioned that not only do you have your rare disease, but you have a child with a rare disease as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you manage that? I'm, I'm finding more and more people in the community that fit into that niche as well. So I, I think it's, it's a helpful lens to look into. And I, I'd love it if you'd, you'd share a little bit more about that, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, I would love to. Um, I have to say that while being I'm a single parent that, you know, I'm the mom of a kid, I'm the dad of a kid, you know, I'm just I'm the rare giver. I just I am the rare giver. I've always been the rare giver. It's just a different situation. It's a different, the stories that I hear from others, like you got diagnosed three years ago. I don't even know what that would be like because I grew up my entire life with it. So my son grew up his entire life knowing that I had the disease and knowing that he had the disease. And um, unfortunately, it's not supposed to present very 
you know, poorly in males. It's not supposed to have a very bad prognosis in males, but I think that it has to do with phenotypes. And that's what I'm starting to discover because he's phenotypically like me and he's presenting like I did. Unfortunately, he's already got headaches. He's already got nerve pain. He already hyperextends everything. And it's just, it's not the typical presentation for a male, which is interesting and disappointing at the same time, but will also help for the research. But it's very easy to manage my condition at the same time with his. So like, I'll always address him first because he is depending on me. And I feel like even though I'm supposed to put on my oxygen mask first, maybe I can hold my breath for a little while. And I know that that's probably not the healthiest aspect to have or like thought to have. But I don't know. I just hold my breath. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to take care of his needs because he is suffering right now. And I remember suffering at that age and nobody helped me. And it was so depressing. So I will not do that to him. So I hold my breath and I take care of him and I do my best to take care of myself. And I always feel like I'm just running in circles and not really getting anything done, but people end up still thinking that I'm getting things done. So I guess that works, but it's very challenging and depressing because like, he'll, you know, tell me that it's a symptom and I'll be like, no, no, not the symptom. No, this is the last thing that I want to see present itself because he's already present like dysautonemia. I'm like, no, not the trifecta. You're just supposed to get stiff when you're older. That's mostly what happens to males is they get very, very, very excessively stiff in their like seventies. But I was like, okay, well, I've got some years this. I've got some years to figure out this allele and come up with a gene therapy and I don't know, make it so my son won't suffer. But now I'm seeing that he's got a phenotype like me. So I'm just going to have to, you know, take care of his disease like I take care of mine. And I'm going to have to find an expert. Um, I'm planning on moving to Boston just because Buffalo is not the place to have a disease. And that's why I had to do my own diagnostic odyssey myself. I really shorten it by a lot. And I shortened his by a lot. I mean, to think that people used to get diagnosed in 20 years for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And my son was diagnosed in two and I was diagnosed in 15. And it was only after two years I found out that something wrong too. So, I mean, I definitely shortened the diagnostic odyssey for him just by knowing, you know, about my own condition. So that, I mean, it's helpful and it's hurtful at the same time because at least he has similar diseases. Like one has a few problems that are different than me. Like he's got a hole in his heart, which makes his oxygen saturation level go down to 94. And unfortunately the school does not want to accommodate a 504k plan because of something, quote unquote, may happen. They said, well, we don't plan for things that may happen. I'm like, no, it's not a may happen. It's a will happen, is happening, and we don't know when it will happen, but I promise you that it will happen. So I'm still, you know, fighting with the school about that. And I'm fighting with the uh, other parent about the fact that he has this rare disease. It's true, because he tries to prove me wrong. He'll try and get my friends to like, you know, say that it's not real. And I'm like, why don't you just go to the doctor? and speak with the doctor that diagnosed it, because I stayed out of the room just to make sure that I was completely independent of the diagnosis, because I didn't want it to be true. I just kind of knew that it was true when my water broke at 35 weeks, because at 35 weeks, the membranes are made of the fetal. So I was like, oh, I'm in for it. I'm like, I lost a lotto. It was just a coin toss. It's like a 50-50. So I'm like, I lost a lotto, so we're going to be in this together. So at least it's kind of cool because it's me and him in this together mostly. So at least we can work on this together. I just hope that it's not too taxing on him and that it doesn't present itself too poorly and that I can get doctors to listen to me. It's like with the nerve pain, I was like, well, nerve pain in your hands and feet is normally just indicative of a B12 problem. I have a very severe B12 problem where I actually got to name it and it's on the uh, national or it's on the NCATS website or something or the guard website. And I think the NOR website, I called it polygenetic methylation disease because um, I have a problem with methylations. And my body doesn't methylate pro things properly or demethylate things properly. And that's how your body makes things active. So like folate, vitamin B12, vitamin D, medications. Um, so I think that he has a similar problem. And so I was like, hey, 
she was his doctor I was like hey primary doctor hey pediatrician whichever the profession is because I just switched um could we just try b12 because it's a water soluble vitamin and he's got tingling in his hands and feet he's complaining about nerve pain it's not going to hurt him just to give him b12 underneath his tongue and it's very uh, absor absorbable underneath your tongue and he just didn't listen to me and totally ignored me so it's just it's very frustrating to have these diseases to know what I'm talking about and then have to deal with a doctor that just does not want to listen. And it's like, this is your job. You know, I just remind them of what their jobs are. I just, I have to go and remind, you know, the social worker, like, you are a mandatory reporter. Therefore, since my son is getting sicker because of the current custody arrangements, I'm just going to, you know, show up with the evidence, which I'm not going to say because I feel bad for my son for what's happening and just pop it on their desk and say, here, you're a mandatory reporter. I need you to report this because if I report it, they don't pay attention. And I got yelled at for reporting the issue. And it's something that another CPS worker said that I could probably pr prove medical negligence for. So it's very, very, very hard to parent while rare with the other parent unwilling to understand that not only does he need medical care in general, because he just like gives him medicine that he's not prescribed. He doesn't give him medicine that he is prescribed. And he just likes to get him double shots, bring him to random doctors and stuff. And it's very dangerous for any child. But he also doesn't understand that our child is you know, at extra risk. And also he's got... The possibility of having alpha one and i don't know if he's a carrier or not i just know that his dad is and um you know i know that that can present at any time and being a carrier of it they don't actually really know the difference between being a carrier of it or having it it's just you're a carrier of it so you may present symptoms and it can affect even your liver and your lungs so i find about your liver at global genes and i was like oh no he has alpha one and that's from his actual dad's side of the family so i just wish that he could engage in the help that he could get with all these questions that he has it's like all the questions that you have are available to you and I can even show you how to do it, but he's not very interested. So I would say it's the most challenging thing that I've ever done. It's far more challenging than, I don't know, making a connection with PJ Brooks or writing a book about rare diseases or doing a rare disease day at my college, or I don't know, even writing a thesis paper over a three day, you know, um, winter uh, snow in about the poly or the phenotypical variants in PTSD. Like those things should be very difficult, but difficulties that we face, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we are climbing mountains that should not be climbable. We are. So I'm very amazed by it both. It's really challenging, right? You've got so many layers that you're working through, Robin. And I want to make sure as well that you recognize as challenging and as difficult as it is, that this is certainly commendable. You know, the work that you're doing, the way you're going about things. And at the same time, you know, the point you made about maybe I can just hold my breath for a little bit. It's, it's so applicable to me. You know, the whole put, put your oxygen mask on first. Right. Like we we know we're supposed to do this. And and the, the thought is, well, what's going to happen to my kiddo if I do that? Right. Like, I mean, I, I want to make sure they're taken care of as well. And, you know, as we navigate life with a rare disease and you've got, you know, your son who also has a rare disease, I feel like these things are just all magnified. And I also feel like you're you're a combination of the community that we're in. Robin, you straddle the worlds of being a parent with rare and a parent of rare. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any little tips or, or tricks for those who might be in a similar boat. Any advice to help people through? Actually, so I have this theory that I came up with. It's uh, conjoined research with my last advisor when I was an undergraduate. Sorry, I keep on forgetting I graduated. Her name is Dr. Ann Sweeney, and she did something called wellability. And I separately, without even knowing, came up with the term rareability and then rareactivity. So rareactivity is where I just accept what I can do for that day. And so like, so let's say I want to do 10 things and I can't do those 10 things. So I pick three of those things to do and I do those three things very well. And then I put the seven things on for the next day. 
that's kind of like the thing that I do. I accept the fact that I can only do what I can do. And that if I don't put it out into the world, nobody else will. Because only I can put out what I want to put out. So if I don't do that, then I'm letting everybody down by just not doing it. And I'm not going to just not do it just because I can't get done as much as I wanted to or as I plan to. And then rare ability is accepting the fact that, you know, I may not be good at math, for example, and I'm not good at geography. I'm not good at um, maps. I'm not good at navigation, but I'm good at science and I'm good at advocacy and I'm good at just caring about people. And those are very important traits. So I'm not going to harp on myself for the things I'm bad at because that's pointless. Nobody's going to just become good at something anyways you know, in that way, like you can become better at something that you're not very good at, but it's better just to foster the skills that you're great at. So that's what I call someone's rare ability, which is really a universal thing. It's not just for people with rare diseases, but it was put into a textbook at Buffalo State College that they use for the uh, health and wellness program, because she wanted to show that not everybody has, you know, this healthy life where you can balance your work and your school and like stay healthy in those manners, and that there may be other things you have to do. So then she you know, included my rare ability stuff right next to it. So like side by side, there's well ability and well activity and there's rare ability and rare activity. And then one is for your, what I call a uh, normal abnormal group because nobody's actually normal. It's just a, you know, variation, a, a subset of normals that are considered quote unquote normal, you know, and then there's, you know, your, so I mean, like normal doesn't really mean anything, you know what I mean? Nobody's everyone's different and that's what makes the world smile. That's what makes the world beautiful. I think the diversity makes the world beautiful and a better place. So like the rare ability and the reactivity, that's kind of how I try to do it. And I try and stay mindful of like what's going on. It's so like I do mindfulness in a different way, I guess, than other people is what I realized because other people use mindfulness way to, you know, um, meditate in a way or like distract yourself from what you're experiencing. But I use mindfulness to stay my head in the game, to know like what's going on, to be mindful of the fact that I should not be that hard on myself for whatever it is and that I'm just doing the best that I can do. And that's what I do with mindfulness as I just stay mindful of reality and I just accept the reality for what it is. And I realize that it, we're very lucky to even have this life, no matter how hard it is, no matter what we have to do and no matter how many mountains we have to climb, because the more mountains that we climb, the more that we learn and the more that we grow and the more that we become, you know, people that know things and can help people that other people couldn't. It's just, it makes us into very vast, you know, multidisciplinary people that can help in so many different ways and I think that it's very beautiful that we can turn something so painful into something so beautiful. I agree. Yeah, it is very beautiful as well, especially the way you explained that, Robin. I love the analogies that you put in place there. Rareability is fantastic as well. And with, you know, with rareability, reactivity, mindfulness, between those three aspects, it really seems like you've got some well-defined ways to help you cope and, and kind of move through things. I think they're wonderful ideas and concepts. Do you use those to help you find things to, to do with your son? And I, I bring that up because that's one of the questions that I always like to ask the guests on Parents as Rare is how, how do you do activities or adjust what you do or how you do things with your child? It's funny. Actually, we have like some games that we play that um, started when he was a kid, like peekaboo blanky and um, knock them all down. So like if I can't get out of bed and I'm too tired, we will just play games with a blanket. We'll play games with the blocks and he'll just, I'll build them as I can. And then he'll just knock them all down. And even though he's eight, he still loves it. You know what I mean? So we'll play board games in bed, you know, or bed, you know, we'll just do in bed days if we have to. And I make it exciting by like, I don't know, getting some popcorn or something. And, you know, we watch his favorite movie, even if we watch it eight times, I don't care just as long as he's happy. But like we adjust by just being like, well, you know, I want to do this day. We want to do that day. But you know what? We'll do that another day because we'll have plenty of days, sweetheart. And that's what I always tell him. And he's like, I know, mommy, that's okay. 
And he's like, I'm just happy to be with you. And I'm just surprised that he has so much fun with me because I thought that I would be the boring parent or the lame parent. But I guess I make things fun by being like, okay, let's build all these blocks by my bed. And then you just knock them all down because he loves doing that. He's just like, mom, let's play knock them all down. And he takes a blanket and he puts it up to his head and he's like, peek a boo. And that's what I just used to do with him when he was, you know, just a baby because it would make him laugh so much. It was just so sweet. But it's just so sweet that he still does it. So like we just, you know, we just invent games. And he's, he'll be like, mom, there's zombies coming. I'm going to get them and stuff. And he'll be like, okay, I'm going to get them. Bam, bam, bam. Okay, they're sleeping now because, you know, I don't like to pretend guns and stuff like that. So I just pretend that I'm like, if you're going to play pretend, we're going to pretend they're going to bed. So I'm like, they're going to bed. So I don't know. He'll be like, okay, I'm going to defend us. I'm going to protect us. Bam, bam, bam. So we just play random games with our imagination because I don't know. I feel like in my body, I may be trapped, but in my mind, I'm free forever. Yeah, that's another one. You're you're dropping a lot of one-liners here, Robin. I, li- I like it. I'm going to take knock them all down as an idea for myself as well. I think I think my six-year-old might like that one. So I'll add it to my repertoire there. Um, so thanks for, yeah, thanks for sharing all of that. And and as you do so, I'm looking at myself in the camera here as you're sharing those ideas. And I'm I'm smiling because I, you know, I enjoy hearing about how how people like us in these different situations adapt and really try to make something good out of something bad, trying to do our best with that, especially when it comes to the interactions with our, with our children. So, so again, thanks for sharing Robin. And and before we start to wrap up, I did want to ask what you're up to now with your advocacy work. I was curious to see if you'd like to share with us a little bit about what you're doing with angel aid and anything else that you might have going on. That's actually what I was going to say. Um, so I, uh, I got involved with the angel aid when I met uh, Crystal O'Loughlin's mom, actually at the global genes conference in 2019. It was the first one that I went to the first summit and I went there and her mom was just amazed by me. And then she was like, you got to go chase down, you know, this girl that's got, you know, high heels, the red, and then this reverse purple Mohawk, you'll recognize her. She's very but you need to mentor her because I think that, you know, that she would bring wonderful things to angel aid because she's also, you know, a rare mom and she's been actually doing this on her own without having a support system at all. So, you know, we should, you know, mentor her and welcome her into our, you know, our group. So then I became a part of angel aid and then, you know, she mentored me for a while. So we did a lot of work together and she helped me develop, you know, speaking decks and stuff like that. And then um, I happened to just be at the Nord conference and she was just, and I told her, I was like, are you going to the national organization for disorders conference this year? And I, she normally doesn't. So I wasn't expecting her to, but she was like, no, you know, and I was like, okay, that's okay. I'll, I'll miss you. But you know, it was nice to see you at global genes. And then um, she's like, Robin, are you at the conference? I'm like, yeah, of course I'm at the conference. I already told you I would be like through text. And she's like, would you mind doing me a favor? I'm like, um, no, not at all. Of course I wouldn't mind doing you a favor. And she's like, can you present my poster? Uh, they just approved it. I'm like, what? I'm like, are you sure that you trust me to present your research? Because that's a huge honor, I have to say. I feel very honored that she trusted me. She's like, you don't even have to present it if you don't want to. You can just leave it up. But if you want to present it, that would be cool. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll present it. So, you know, I went back and forth and presented it. And I took pictures with, like, tons of people so that she would have lots of stuff, even though she wasn't there. Because she probably would have gone had she known that they that, that they were going to present it. But they uh, wanted some kind of edits or something. And then last minute, they decided to, like, the first day of the conference, she's like, hey, I know that you're really extremely busy doing like probably like a lot of stuff. And I'm really sorry to bother you. I'm like, this is not a bother, Crystal. Come on now. I'm like, I love the fact that you know, rare giver thing because I love the term rare giver because it does not define male or female or other, you know, it's just rare giver. You know, we are more than just a caregiver because we have to deal with the rare aspects of the caregiving also. So it's, you know, it doesn't define gender you are. And it also, you know, it just includes 
the rare disease community, which I don't like to be, you know, in inclusive or exclusive like that, but sometimes it's needed because other people are going to understand what we understand. So I just love the term. And also the fact that you got to partner with Microsoft. That's a huge accomplishment because Microsoft is very much into accessibility and making the world a more accessible place because they did a lot of stuff with um, uh, information technology to help with people that are blind, uh, with people that have, you know, problems with speech um, and with software to help with uh, talk to text and stuff like that. And then they've also come up with lots of other really cool software. So the fact that she got to partner with Microsoft is uh, quite amazing. And then, then she made this uh, rare giver journey map. And it's really amazing because it goes through all of the steps that you may or may not go through as a rare giver. So you may not have to have to go through, you know, like that or someone passes away. But if you do, they're there for you. They've got your back. You know, they've got it down. They've got what you need to do and how you should feel and what step you're at. You know, it's, it's a very beautiful map. Yeah, we'll get some of this info about Rare Givers and Angel Aid into the show notes so folks can check it out. I think it's a wonderful project, and I'm glad that they reached out to you and that you were able to do that at the Nord Conference. Nice job. I uh, I also know you mentioned Rare Givers a little earlier. It caught my attention. I like that. I like that term. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a good one. So yeah, so thanks for sharing what you've been up to there, and we'll we'll also Robin get your social media handles mixed into the show notes as well. So there's very many ways to reach me, and I love to help people. So, I mean, anybody who wants to reach out, please reach out to me. Because all that I want to do is help make the world a better place with you. So, I don't know, join me and join Adam and help us make the world a better place for caregivers, caregivers, and everybody. Well said, well said. Well, we'll make sure to get those those uh, links mixed into the show notes, like I said, Robin. And, and you know, I love that you're Googleable as well. Appreciate it. Robin Powers, once again, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining me today. Like I, I've mentioned before, these conversations are just so important and I'm very appreciative of them. You take good care and let's stay in touch. Oh, thank you so very much. It would be my honor to stay in touch. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Parents is Rare, a series of the Energy in Action podcast. Please be sure to leave a review and a rating for this episode wherever you listen and subscribe and listen to the Energy in Action podcast, where we talk all things Mito. Until next time, remember to show up, be vulnerable, supportive, and kind, and give yourself permission to feel along the way.